says, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. This test is an important context. This is not like a neutral question. This is a challenging question. He's testing Jesus. And he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is an important question. This is not a question I hear very um, frequently anymore. But I think, if we're just being honest, this is a really important question. This is the question of the good life. This is the question of the good life to come. The already, how can I live in the kingdom of God? What would it look like for me to live in God's time and space? That's a huge question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus knows it's a test. And when Jesus is tested with a question, he often responds with questions. This is actually one of our habits. Ask deeper questions. Jesus responds with two. He says, what is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? Just, I'm going to make a few observations kind of as we go before I really set up this tension. But I love that when Jesus wants to know about eternal life, he goes to scripture. When Jesus wants to know about how to live now, he goes to scripture. When Jesus has challenging questions, he goes to scripture because he knows that God is speaking there, that there is wisdom for life there, and there is wisdom for eternity there. If you want to know about eternal life, he says, what's written, what's already written in the law, how do you read it? And the lawyer, the scribe, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. The message, if you've got that translation by Eugene Peterson, he says, love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence. That's a pretty cool way of um, translating Deuteronomy 6, this really important command to love God with everything that you have. That's not all. And he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This is what the law says. This is Deuteronomy. This is Leviticus. And Jesus tells him, you have answered correctly. Jesus replied, have you ever, I've been like this a lot, just say, so have you ever been in a place where you're correct and wrong at the same time? Have you ever been correct and wrong at the same time? Let me introduce you to what this could look like. You have answered correctly. Some of the ways that I thought that I could be correct, and I see that I may have been wrong at the same time, it's because very often I have thought about my faith as mostly about information. It's about getting the things right. It's about what you know. But Jesus' answer assumes that you're getting the things right, the information. But he says, it's not about answering correctly. He says, do this and you will live. It's a pretty challenging word from Jesus. You can have the right answers, but Jesus says life comes from doing not just knowing. Life comes from doing, not just thinking, not just believing. You can be correct and wrong at the same time. And so this man wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Message says he was looking for a loophole. There's a, a book that I, I pulled a lot from for the sermon called The Art of Neighboring. The Art of Neighboring. They say it's important to note the statement, he wanted to justify himself. The man wanted to define this word neighbor in such a way that he couldn't be found blameworthy. If his neighbor was someone he could choose, then he'd be okay. By asking Jesus to define the word neighbor, this man was looking for a loophole. Who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? In Jesus' time, we know from the Sermon on the Mount, he says some of them are saying, love your neighbor but hate your enemy. So they had different categories of people. So who is my neighbor? Jesus is, 
He's asked this question, who is my neighbor? But let me ask you today, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Uh, I think, can you just shout out an answer? Who is my neighbor? Everybody. Okay, perfect. Setting up exactly. No, I'm just kidding. Yes, everybody, right? Or we might even say the person in need. The person in need. I was reading a story. This is several years ago during an election. It was a big controversial election. There was a couple of candidates still left. Bernie Sanders was in it. Hillary Clinton was in it. Donald Trump was in it. Any of these make you nervous just me saying their names? But there's a tow truck driver named Ken Shoup, and he gets a call that there's a woman stranded on the interstate. She's been in a wreck, and the tow truck driver, Ken, he arrives, and he sees this car that has all these political bumper stickers. Clearly, she's a Bernie supporter. You remember Bernie Sanders? It's not like he died. He's still, he's still around. I say remember. I mean, so we saw these Bernie stickers, and it says <laughs> Ken was worried that they wouldn't pay the tow bill because he said, quote, every time I've dealt with these people in re- recent history, I get burned with an E, not a U. Burned. <laughs> so... He says, very politely, he told her that he couldn't tow her because she was, quote, obviously a socialist, and he advised her to call the government for help. The woman was like, wait, are you serious? He was. Speaking of burned, he says to local reporters, something came over me. I think the Lord came to me, and he just said, get in the truck and leave. And when I got in my truck, you know, I was so proud because I felt like I finally drew a line in the sand and stood up for what I believed. (laughs) Yeah, right? Let me caution you. Before we say, at least I'm not that guy, isn't there an element where it can be pretty easy to justify ourselves when we're asking the question of who is my neighbor? When we're asked this question, who's my neighbor? And we want to justify ourselves, it can be so easy. It can be easy in a couple of ways. I think one of those ways is to kind of reduce it and shrink it, but also at the same time to expand it. They both have the same effect. In The Art of Neighboring, the authors say, we become like the lawyer looking for a loophole. We tell ourselves that we got a lot going on in our lives, so surely the great commandment applies only to the wounded enemy lying beside the road, doesn't it? Since we haven't come across many of those lately, surely we're doing just fine when it comes to loving our neighbors. But they say, maybe not. Maybe it's not just a person in need. Whoops, spoiler. Um, Maybe it's not just a person in need. Art of neighboring, once more. If we say everyone is my neighbor, you know, if you shrink it, it's too small. And then we say, at least we're not kin shoot. And then if we expand it, the same effect happens. Everyone is my neighbor. It can become an excuse for avoiding the implications of following the great commandment. Our neighbors become defined in the broadest of terms. They're the people across town, the people who are helped by the organization that received our donations. They're the people whom the government helps. We don't have to feel guilty, we tell ourselves. After all, we can't be expected to really love everybody, can we? The problem is, this is really good, so listen up if I lost you, that when we aim for everything, we hit nothing. So when we insist we're neighbors with everybody, often we end up being neighbors with nobody. 
That's our human nature. Today, as we read the parable, we go straight for loving the neighbor on the side of the road. Thus, we make a metaphor of the neighbors, a metaphor that doesn't include the person who lives next door to us. So it's not just a person in need. A neighbor is also a person nearby, right? It's a person in your path. It's a person nearby. Can we just do a little exercise? This is unusual for a sermon time. I understand. But if you could grab one of those bulletins that's on a chair, read it later, but for now, flip it over. And it's, it's blank on one side, right? Can you do a little exercise? And it will look something like this. This is an exercise that comes out of the book, The Art of Neighboring. And they say, you are here, and they want you to imagine basically your, your closest eight neighbors. And they say, you may live in a cul-de-sac, don't worry about that. But basically, just kind of draw your house within your neighborhood. Can you do that? And then I'm going to give you like three or four minutes of just silence. And it's going to be weird if you're not doing this. So it would be better for you and for me if you did this. To start answering these three questions then Williamson's are like, we don't, <laughs> we just moved here last week. What are you talking about? So first and last names, put it in A. B, put in some personal information that you would have to learn, personal information that you would have to learn by talking to the person. It doesn't have to be real deep, but just something that you learn by speaking to them at some point. And then C, I called it personal motivations, but really what, what the authors are asking for is like their hopes, their dreams, their plans, like what drives them. Something on a real heart level. All right, can you start this project? Just kind of map out and then just start naming your neighbors and what you know about them. Okay? All right, I'm going to give you three or four minutes. I'm going to kind of sit down and I'm going to pop back up in a minute. All right, all right, come back to me for just a second. This is just the beginning of an exercise that is actually going to become most of our homework. Um, in, in, as far as I can assign homework, there's no grade and you're not going to turn it in. But I think this could actually be something helpful. We'll come back to this at the end. Can I tell a story about some neighbors? Um, we had some neighbors recently throw a neighborhood block party. It was a neighborhood that we moved into right before COVID. And basically, we, we got our house settled, and then everything shut down. And we didn't really get a chance to meet a lot of our neighbors for a couple of years. A couple of months ago, maybe six weeks ago, there was a neighborhood block party. Somebody with a pool invited everybody on the block. And it was a really great time. We got to meet a lot of new people. We got to meet more people in one day than we had in like two years. It was a, just an amazing experience. I was talking with uh, a couple of men, and the host was there. And I was like, that shed back there, by the way, I am, talks about shed to his friends years old. I don't know how old you are. I'm talks about sheds with his friends years old. And so I started talking about sheds with my friends that's a nice shed. He's like, yeah, me and my elderly dad, we built that together. He said, it's like a, it's a Pinterest photo come to life. I was like, that's really great. As we're talking, a woman comes over. She says, it's a lot better than that one on the corner. She says, that one looks like a hen house. Um, now, let the reader understand that I live on the corner. And I have also recently just undertaken a really great project with my dad of building a shed to match our hen house that's next to it. And so I'm feeling really a little embarrassed. You know, I'm just meeting these people. And so I say, you know, I think you're right. His shed is great. But just so you know, that shed on the corner is mine. 
And she said, I know. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) So, can I just say that some neighbors are hard to love? Can, Can we say that out loud? Uh, some neighbors, real neighbors, are hard to love. I think this is important to keep in mind, at least to have a little compassion with some of the people in the story we're about to read. Neighboring is a very difficult thing. We'll talk about some of those reasons why. But neighboring is an essential thing because it's wrapped up in the greatest commandment to love God and to love your neighbor. You You cannot receive eternal life without this. Jesus tells a story to this question of who is my neighbor. A man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Sometimes this, this path was called the way of death because it was dangerous. It was really well known. It's this change of elevation. It's about uh, it's several miles, but it, over the course of those 10 to 15 miles, it lowers down a, almost a mile in elevation. Like it's it's kind of rugged terrain. People are there. It's dangerous just from like a walking perspective, but it's also dangerous because of who's waiting. This is the story Jesus tells. The story Jesus tells is probably well known. It's probably happened to a hundred people, but it's perhaps even happened famously to somebody who this is very similar to what happened. It says that he was attacked by robbers and they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and then they went away, leaving him half dead. Jesus' way of telling the story by the way, I understand that you've heard this story before. Um, <laughs> so I, I totally understand that you've, you've read the Good Samaritan, you've used the phrase Good Samaritan, but I think, would you just kind of stay tuned because I think there could still be something for you today. So Jesus, he has a really unique way of talking about this man's injuries because he doesn't use the word injured. He doesn't use the word sick. He doesn't say he was ill. He doesn't say he was having problems that day. He says he's half dead. I think this is a really important indicator. Because he uses the language of death. Hold on to that for just a second. Because Jesus says that a couple of guys, they stumble onto the scene. First, I'm having trouble with my clicker. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. It says he passed by on the other side. A priest. A priest was going by the same road. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place, he saw him and he passed by the other side. A priest and a Levite. Do you remember your Old Testaments? These are people who work in the temple. Number one rule for somebody working in the temple, number one rule, stay away from death. You're, you're, you're actually not allowed to touch any dead corpses unless the dead ones are like next of kin. Then the Lord seems to make some allowances. But even if you get close to death, there's all these ritual purifications. You, you have to separate yourselves But these guys are coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. Sometimes Jericho is called the city of priests because it's it's almost like the vacation home. Maybe their family lives in Jericho while they do their work in the temple, and it's just like a 10-mile trip down down through this. And so after, imagine that you're like two weeks on, any any like nurses or pharmacists where you have like a heavy week and then you're kind of slow week. Imagine two weeks on and then two weeks off. Two weeks on and something like that rhythm. He's been working at the temple for his shift, and now he finally gets to come home. And what does he come home with? Well, the priests and the Levites, they would receive, it wasn't just financial compensation, they would actually receive the sacrifices, the grains, the animals. And so he would be loaded down with meats and grains and the food for the next two weeks for his family. This is how the priests and Levites were supported. 
And so he's traveling this road, going back to his family, most likely. And he sees this guy who's been beaten, stripped, and left half dead. Dead. He's not dead yet. <laughs> you can hear the Monty Python voice. <laughs> it's only a flesh wound. Um, he's, he's not dead yet. Um, that's my British accent, I guess. Um, but for them, it's not just a matter of, like, helping somebody, right? Do you see that? It's a matter of, like, livelihood. It's a matter of, can I go back to work after this? It's a matter of seeing my family. It's a matter of eating that food that's on the donkey. All of this is at stake. And some, we kind of get this, right, after the two years of COVID. Where it's like, can you imagine a scenario where there's someone sick with COVID? You know they have COVID. They don't have a mask. You don't have a mask. CDC says if you're around them for more than 15 minutes, you remember all these days? If you're around them for 15 minutes, what do you have to do? Got to quarantine. It's like, oh, man. I'm going to get home, and then I have to lock myself up for 10 days just to be separated from these people? I've, I've missed them so much. And then we have to throw out the food. It's spoiled. It's contaminated. It's unclean. So this is really inconvenient. This is really inconvenient for a priest and a Levite. Now, I don't want to be too soft on the priest and the Levite. These are the people who are called by God to be these ambassadors of what it looks like to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, right? The, these are the guys that are held to a pretty high standard of purity and holiness and cleanliness. They're the worship leaders of the people of Israel. What are they doing? But notice, it says both of these men, it says they did see him. They saw him, and then what do they do? And then they pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, Jesus says, a Samaritan. Now, we've talked about Samaritans before when we were in John chapter 4, but just kind of a quick refresh on who these people are. Samaritans are from the northern kingdom of Israel, but the northern kingdom of Israel was taken over by pagans, the Assyrians. What the Assyrians did is that they imported in lots of other people to this territory, and they kind of made them, um, let's say, Many commentators call the Samaritans half-breeds. Because, yes, they're the people of God from the tribe of Israel. Samaria is the capital of the north. There's a temple to Yahweh, the God. But these people are, have been mixed in with the pagan cultures that were imported from Assyria. They are hated by people like Jews and Samaritans. They are looked down on because they're from the wrong race. They're the wrong race. There's this ethnic hatred from the people of Judea against the people of Samaria and sometimes vice versa. You remember when Jesus' disciples, they get frustrated because some of the Samaritans didn't receive their message very well. And they say, Jesus, Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven and burn them? It's like they're a little too eager to, to just blast some people from Samaria. That's, that's this, they're the wrong race. But they're also the wrong religion here, the wrong religion. Yes, they worship the same God, but they have different temples, and they're not allowed in one another's temples. Yes, they worship the same God, but they have different scriptures. The Samaritans read the Torah, and they don't accept the prophets that went down to Judea. They're a different religion. They're not coming from the temple like the priests and the Levite. But perhaps most importantly for a conversation about neighbors, they're from the wrong region. The only guy in this story who's not a neighbor, <laughs> who's actually from another place, is, is this guy. And yet, wrong race, wrong religion, wrong region, 
This guy is the one. It says when he traveled, he came to where the man was, and he saw him just like the priest and the Levite, but instead of passing by on the other side, it says that he took pity on him. He took pity on him. Because of his compassion, because of his mercy, because of the Old Testament, it's called steadfast love. That's all of this kind of category of how he felt about this man. Because of his compassion, he was moved to service. The, the picture of Luke 10, we'll have to come back to it in, you know, in the future whenever we're kind of exploring a biblical picture of justice because there's so much here. But look how it moved him to action. Just, just a couple of these pieces. It says he went to him. This is proximity. Proximity. The work of reconciliation, John Perkins says, you have to get proximate. You have to get near. You have to go to the neighbor in order to be a neighbor. But he went to him and he bandaged his wounds. There's a medical component here. But it's not just medical. He was pouring on oil and wine. Those were like antiseptics and pain relievers. It says, then he put the man on his own donkey. This may seem like a minor thing, but we would call it transportation. He, he gives him a ride and he gives up his ride to do it. He brought him to an inn and he took care of him. This is like hospitality. Uh, actually, hospitals come from this idea of hospitalities, hospitality, and it was Christian monasteries in Europe that basically invented hospitals. They were these places of refuge for kind of weary travelers to be welcomed in, to be treated with the love of Christ, and for people to go on their way. Now it's been commercialized, of course, it's, it's turned into government, but even still today, our hospitals are called Baptist and Methodist. <laughs> now, it's because Christians have this kind of in our, in our DNA. They brought him to an inn, they took care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper. This is a financial assistance. You see, it's transportation, it's medical, it's, it's relationships proximate. It's, there's so many pieces to what it looks like to care and to serve for a neighbor. He took him to the innkeeper. A denarii is like a day's wage. So this would be like a couple of hundred dollars. And then he says, but that's not all. Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. This is, this is I mean, he's the good Samaritan for a reason, right? We, we all know about the good Samaritan. There are now humanitarian organizations called like Samaritan's Purse or, or like these Doctors Without Borders who are doing good Samaritan work because of this ideal example. This is what it looks like to be a neighbor. So Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor? I, l I love how Jesus reframes this. Do you notice it? Who is my neighbor? And in the ESV, it says, which of these men do you think proved to be a neighbor? He, sh he shifts it. The question isn't, who's my neighbor? But it's, who am I neighboring? The question is, what is the definition of a neighbor? It's, how am I supposed to be a neighbor? It, it becomes something that we do. But the man says, who is a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy. That's the compassion. That's steadfast love. The one who embodied this attribute of God. That's the one who was a neighbor. And then Jesus says, go and do likewise. Remember where we started in kind of setting up this tension is that you can answer correctly about who your neighbor is. You can answer correctly about how to inherit eternal life. You can know the answers. But for Jesus, he says there has to be a, 
a hearing and a doing that go together. If you're going to hear from the word of the Lord in Scripture, if you're going to hear from the promptings of the Spirit, there has to be a doing that follows, especially when it comes to fulfilling this command to love your neighbor as yourself. Go and do. Go and do. And guys, this isn't like some like, tough teaching that's hard to understand from Jesus. This is a core teaching of Christianity. The brother of Jesus, do you remember James? He's talking about faith. A lot of us want to talk about faith as having no works, but James says, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. He says, if you see a brother or sister or somebody in need, and you just say, go on your way, be warmed and filled, and you don't do anything, he says, what good is that? Real faith, he says, works. It does something, and it does something primarily to those people in need and people nearby. It, it steps into action. It's not just Jesus and James. Do you remember John? John says this, we love because he first loved us. Amen. But if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. So this is the commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. What would that look like? When John, it looks like doing. Love isn't a feeling that we're called to. Love is an action that we're called to. Mercy is an action that we're called to. Uh, Lewis, I, I love his book, Mere Christianity. It's one of those that I like go back to just about every year. It's short. It's like these, uh, I shouldn't say ancient. They feel ancient 1940s radio lectures from the famous C.S. Lewis. And then those lectures were then written down. But he has one on a chapter called Charity. Here's what he says. He says, we like or are fond of some people and not others. It's important to understand that this natural liking is neither a sin nor a virtue, any more than your likes and dislikes in food are a sin or a virtue. Thank God, my dislikes for vegetables is not a sin. I'm looking at you, Marshawn, because my master gardener back there. He says, it's just a fact. But of course, what we do about it is either sinful or virtuous. Oh, no. Does that mean have to? No, I'm not going to go into that. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Lewis says, do not waste your time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. He says there's a relationship between like and love. But he says, mostly it doesn't matter. We're called to love anyway. And love takes shape by doing. By doing. You know, maybe it doesn't matter if they've got a different political party or come from a different race or come from a different religion or come from a different region. Perhaps the love and mercy that we're called to is the neighboring that we're called to isn't about figuring out who is my neighbor. It's about becoming a neighbor. So to that end, let's kind of get a little practical, can we? We've been asking the question, who is my neighbor? And we started with this neighborhood map. This, I would love for you to kind of take this on as an assignment. Um, you can take it on as an assignment from me, that's fine. But what I'm hoping that you will do is to really spend some time in prayer and discern, is the Spirit leading you toward some of your neighbors? Um, as you did the exercise a few minutes ago, and as you kind of 
step out this week and are sent into the world and into your neighborhood, is the Spirit burdening you with anything? I, I just ask, would you pay attention to that? Do that hearing and doing circle that we've, we've practiced? It starts with neighborhood mapping. Can you kind of start filling this out in the next couple of weeks? If you don't have the answers today, that's totally understandable. This is a surprise pot quiz. But now you kind of, you know the assignment. What would it look like to be a neighbor in your neighborhood? <laughs> it starts with knowing their names and starts by having conversations. And I know this is difficult. There were a couple of days, Kelsey and I, we, we made meals to try to go meet our neighbors. And we just knocked on a neighbor's door and knocked and knocked. And it was like, oh, I guess they're not home or not answering their door. So we go into the next house and we knock and we knock. And then it's like 0 for 3. And finally, we come to some neighbors that we know and we text them. We say, we got a meal for you. They're like, great. <laughs> uh, defeated the purpose, right? We didn't meet any new neighbors, but uh, we did feed uh, Ron and Christy Wade, who some of you know. He's an elder at Highland. He runs Hope Works. He's my next door neighbor. Um, anyway, so I, I get that this is going to be challenged, but I think this, this can be a first step. But this isn't the only step. With your groups this month, uh, read, help design an Oikos mapping assignment. Uh, your group leaders have already kind of gotten this uh, guide for how to do Oikos mapping. And if you are in a group right now, you can just get on YouTube and search Oikos mapping. This isn't like a thing we created. This is a thing that exists outside of Oikos Church. Oikos is the word for your home or your family or your network. And so Oikos mapping is where you kind of trace out your sphere of relationships. And sometimes the relationship we have aren't about the people who live next door to us. They're about connections from something else that's going on in our life. I think both of these are highly worth doing. I, want, I would love to see our families do some neighborhood mapping, but as a group, can you start doing an Oikos map to figure out who the Lord is calling your group to serve? Our, our group life is our primary expression of discipleship here at this church. Sundays, it's just like icing on the cake, but our group life is where we live out day to day and are circled around tables and we're in homes. Our group life, every month we serve together, we play together, we worship together in, in our homes. I, I would love to see if you're new to have you join into one of those groups. One of those is starting on July 20th called Welcome Home. It's like the introduction into group life. And if you're interested in that, Reed, will you raise your hand? Back row, if you're interested in that, We've got Reed here, and if you've already expressed interest, we have some workbooks for you. We get started in about 10 days with the next round. But those des are designed to serve together, to be missional communities, as, as sent to reach our neighborhoods and to, really, to reach our, our networks with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to expand the kingdom through service. So what would it look like for your group to kind of start brainstorming who is the Lord leading us to serve? This is a good project. Okay, neighborhood mapping for your family. Your group this month can do some Oikos mapping. But I think in a personal way, in a personal way, it's going to take finding your rhythm through embracing and resisting. This is a phrase that we've used a lot in this series. I say resist. What I mean is we have to basically cut out some things in order to include some higher priority things. In the art of neighboring, they say the number one obstacle to neighboring well is time. If you're taking the great commandment seriously, undoubtedly, you will start to feel conflicted. You have relationships in your life already, and most of us aren't walking around with extra time wondering what to do with it. We feel overwhelmed by the amount of stuff that is jammed into our schedules. Our lives are always packed. 
But an important question to ask yourself then are, do I live at a pace that allows me to be available to those around me? And if not, are all the things I'm doing more important than taking the great commandments seriously? That's a good question. Resist means you're going to have to cut out some things, most likely. But embrace. What would it look like to embrace a habit of serving your neighbor as a rhythm of life? There's so many ways this could take shape. And actually, the, the graces are one kind of frame for thinking about this. There's perhaps nothing that would serve someone better than to get a note or to just offer kind of a word of thanksgiving, to give thanks to someone, to celebrate with them. Reflecting on the word, I think when you share the gospel with somebody, you're, you're, sharing the gospel is never the ulterior motive, but it is, I think, the ultimate motive. It's not the ulterior motive, but it is like it's the experiencing the reconciliation of Christ together is part of what God wants us to be doing in, in our experience of church's family. Reflecting on the word and serving don't have to be different. They can be the same thing. Word and deed, it has to include the sharing of the gospel in some ways. But another maybe um, more natural way of thinking about how to serve is to think through this lens of asking deeper questions. David Hall is uh, excellent at this. I got to experience David Hall asking deeper questions at, was it Otherlands? Um, I, I love getting to kind of slow down and listen to each other. It reminds me of um, Mr. Rogers. You, you remember this? Won't you be my neighbor? He's like the neighboring king of my childhood. Um, but the 50th anniversary of his show was a couple of years ago. And I, I remember reading this story. I, I wrote down some of these notes from it. There's this author, a young man, maybe my age, kind of grew up with Mr. Rogers. And he's hopeless and dark and struggling, and he's in a really kind of tough time in life. He's got a lot of broken pieces, and it's not going well. And on, on the TV lobby, uh, Mr. Rogers, uh, the Tom Hanks movie, I think, was coming out. Um, but he had this memory. He's like, Mr. Rogers, yeah, I remember that. And a couple of days later, he runs into Mr. Rogers in an elevator, like the real Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, I don't mean to bother you, but I wanted to say thanks. And so he smiles. He says, but this happens to him like every 10 feet. So he says, did you grow up as one of my neighbors? And the author says, I felt like crying. Yeah, I was. <laughs> he opens his arms. He lifts his satchel for a hug, and he says, it's good to see you again, neighbor. I got to hug Mr. Rogers, y'all. <laughs> As he went out the door, I said in a kind of rambling gush that I'd stumbled on the show again recently when I needed it. And so I just said, thanks for that. Mr. Rogers nodded. He paused. He undid his scarf. Of course, Mr. Rogers was wearing a scarf. That's just mine. The author says, he motioned to the window, and he sat down on the ledge. Do you want to tell me what was upsetting you? So I sat. I told him my grandfather had just died. And he was one of the few good things I had, and I felt adrift and brokenhearted. And I like to think that I didn't go on and on, but pretty soon he was telling me about his grandfather and a boat the old man had bought him as a kid. Mr. Rogers asked how long ago Pap had died. It was a couple of months. His grandfather was obviously gone decades, but he still wished the old man was here, and he wished he still had the boat. And he'll never stop missing the people you love, Mr. Rogers said. The grandfather gave Mr. Rogers the rowboat as a reward for something. I forget what, grades or graduation, something important. He didn't have either now. 
But he said he had that work ethic, that knowledge that the old man encouraged him with its gift. These things never go away, Mr. Rogers said. I'm sure my eyes look like stewed tomatoes. Finally, I said thank you and apologized if I made them late for an appointment, Mr. Rogers said. Sometimes you're right where you need to be. Dude. <laughs> Asking deeper questions is a brilliant way to just serve somebody. Slow down and to listen. Maybe in your neighborhood, maybe with your group, maybe just invite somebody to the coffee. And I, I just encourage you, if the Spirit is putting somebody on your heart, would you follow up with some obedience this week? Communion with God is another one of our habits. Communion with God means to be with God, to enjoy His presence. And what Jesus promises, he says, when you go and you serve people who are sick and broken and in prison, he says, you serve me. He says, when you go and you serve and you work, he says, do it heartily as to the Lord. He says, I am there in the service. I'm, there's a communion that can happen even in the labor. Eat together, of course, eat together is an amazing way to show somebody service. Practicing hospitality. We've been talking about that a lot the last couple of weeks. All of these habits are ways of serving that kind of bring the whole rhythm of life together. What would it look like to be present to God and to neighbor? It would look like eternal life. It would look like life in the kingdom of God. It would look like the person of Jesus. Let me close with Jesus and we'll be done. When Jesus is telling this story, he says that a man was attacked by robbers, right? And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, they went away, and they leave him half dead. This word robbers is, is the word lestes. A couple of chapters later in Luke, Jesus comes into the temple, and he says, you've made my father's house a den of robbers. He says, there's just criminals all around. What happened to Jesus when he was surrounded by robbers? Goes into the temple and he starts making his pronouncements. And those people in the temple, a couple of days later, they stripped him of his clothes. And it says, they use the same word, same Greek word. They stripped him and they put on a rope. And they beat him. There's, there's so many things happening with these Greek words, but I don't want to get lost in the Greek. It says that they were laying beatings on this man. They were laying beatings, but on Jesus, it says they laid a crown, and then they beat it in. And then the same word, the laying, it says they laid him on the cross. And at this point, after his beatings, after his humiliation, he's, he's basically half dead. He's half dead, and now they're nailing him to the cross, and then they lift it up. But nobody came for him. There's a priest. There's Levites. There's also Peter and John. Where does the power to serve come from? Where does the mercy get its energy. I think Jesus is, is showing us that our power to serve comes from our power of being served by him. Our mercy is energized 
by our experience of total mercy. The main essential reason that we Christians are called to serve our neighbors is that God has already served us in the same way. Jesus went to the cross, and on his right and his left, he's crucified with robbers. He's left for dead. He's hanging on a tree, and no one came for him. He died for us. His way of talking about this, he says, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see the power. The power comes from grace. The grace of God through the cross of Jesus energizes And if he has done that, this is our our table reflection over here. If he has done that, then what's holding me back from going across the street? If he has done that, then how come I can't sacrificially and generously take on the ministry of transportation and medicine, the, the ministry of proximity, the ministry of mercy? If he has done that for me, totally undeserved. Jesus shows us the power because Jesus gives us the power through grace. Let's close there. Would you stand and I'll pray for you. And then if you've got children, please go down and pick them up pretty quickly. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on us sinners. Allow us to receive your mercy and grace so that we may go and serve in your name. Empower us. Holy Spirit, convict us, burden us, prompt us, move us, and give us courage to follow through for your name and for your glory and for your kingdom. Lord Christ, make it so in our hearts. Amen.